Well, if you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 through 35 will be our text this morning as we begin a nine-week sermon series in which we are entitling Disciple, where we're going to seek to define and explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sadly, this term disciple is far too often neglected and even forgotten within the church, despite being the most commonly used term of identification for a believer in Scripture. Uh, this term disciple is used some 296, or sorry, 269 times and actually used more frequently than the term Christian uh, in the Bible. While the absence of this term from most believers' vocabulary today may be due to well-intended terms of identification like the label of Christian, the harsh reality is that the term itself is not the only thing that's neglected in the church. See, the sad reality is that many within the church fail to live out what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So for that reason, we're going to Maybe it seems like take a step back to some basic 101 teaching, but in doing so, we have three goals in our sermon series, uh, three goals throughout these nine weeks, and that is to be, first of all, confrontational. Uh, we want to, in these sermons, confront where we aren't being disciples, true disciples, and we aren't being these nine attributes of a disciple. We hope that these sermons will be applicational, that they'll help apply these characteristics to our everyday lives where we can learn how to be a disciple in the everyday, not just Sunday, and missional, that it would activate us as a church to start calling and leading others to be disciples, that we would take what we're learning in these nine weeks and we start to apply it in our own lives, but also call others to follow Jesus as well. And so each of these nine weeks, I want to ask you to come prayerfully, anticipating that God will go to work on you through his word as we seek to truly be a gospel centered community of disciples on mission. So everybody's ready for this? All right, let's dive in. Look at Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is God's word for us today. So let's thank him for it and ask him to speak through it before we begin. Father, we do ask that you would speak through your word to broken hearts, to hearts that are distracted from hearts that are, speak to hearts that are caught in the everyday grind of work, parenting, uh, life, fixing things around the home. We take this moment in our lives each week to quiet our hearts, to open your word once again, while, as we have been throughout this week, but do it together as your body open the word and learn from it. To sit under its authority, knowing that your word speaks to us and it changes us. And so God, I this morning would ask that you would hide me behind your glory in your word. That your word would come out uh, as I speak, as strong, able to save, able to change. And that there would be nothing that I would say that would distract uh, from the power of your word. And that you would do work on us this morning, that you would make us more effective followers of you, and if there are those here this morning who would not say that they are one of your followers, they are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you would speak into their hearts, you would awaken their hearts to see the beauty of Jesus. In your name we pray these things, amen. Well, if you look in your, most of your copies of the scripture, right above uh, verse 25, there's a title, The Cost of Discipleship. Counting the cost was something Jim Elliott had done. On January 2nd, 1956, the day that the 29-year-old waited for most of his life finally came. He jumped out of bed, he dressed quickly as he could, and got ready for the short flight over a thick Ecuador jungle. Almost three years of jungle ministry and many hours of planning and praying had led Jim to this day, January 2nd, 1956. Within hours, he and four other missionaries would be setting up camp in the territory of the dangerous and uncivilized Indian tribe known as the Alcas, known as the Wadani tribe. The Alcas had killed all outsiders ever caught in their area. And so, even though... They, these four missionaries, knew the dangers. Jim Elliott and his friends had no doubt that God wanted him to go. Jim, along with his fellow missionaries, were flown in one by one and dropped off on the beach to await for a chance to share Christ to this Indian tribe. After four days of waiting, an Alka man and two women finally appeared. It was not easy for them to understand each other since... The missionaries only knew a few of their phrases and their language. But they shared a meal, even took the man for a flight in the plane. The missionaries tried to show sincere friendship and asked them to bring others next time. For the next two days, the missionaries waited and waited and waited. At last, on day six, two Alka women walked out of the jungle. 
Jim and Pete excitedly jumped in the river and waded over to them. As they got closer, they noticed that these women did not appear friendly at all. And almost immediately, they heard a terrifying cry behind them. As they turned, they saw a group of Alka warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw. Jim reached for his gun in his pocket. He had to decide instantly if he should use it, but he knew he couldn't. Each of the missionaries had promised before that they would not kill an Alka Indian who did not know Jesus in order to save themselves from being killed. Within seconds, the Alka warriors hurled their spears, killing all four missionaries. Ed McCauley, Roger Udirian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. Each had counted the cost. And that fateful day, the cost was paid. Here in Luke 14, as we hear these words from Jesus to the crowd accompanying him, Jesus urges those who are with him to count the cost. For you see, being a disciple is not for the faint of heart. Being a follower of Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Following Jesus has never been an invitation to ease and comfort. It's not just about giving one hour or two a week, maybe some time and resources, money here and there. No, as we'll see this morning from Dr. Luke, that being a disciple is costly. Jesus lays out the cost here in these pages for following him. What are the costs? Well, this morning we'll see that it costs love, it costs sacrifice, and it costs rejection. Love, sacrifice, and rejection. What these words from the lips of Jesus reveal to us is that a true disciple follows Jesus no matter the cost. They give love to Christ above everyone else. They willingly sacrifice themselves for Christ and reject all things of this world for the sake of Christ. But before we dive into this passage this morning... I want to be extremely clear that at the outset, this passage does not give us a list of to-dos. Rather, it's, it's telling us what we should be, who we are. It doesn't give us, you must do this, this, and this in order to become a disciple. No, these actions, this cost, give evidence that you are truly a disciple. These things are fruit of following Christ. They flow out of our identity as a disciple. Because we follow Christ, we love him supremely. Because we follow Christ, we're willing to sacrifice our lives for his sake. And because we follow Christ, we renounce all the things of this world. You see, the truth is the disciple doesn't just give some of themselves. They give all as followers of Christ. In the verses leading up to our passage this morning, we learn that God's kingdom is not for those who jockey for position and rank. It's not for those who have better things to do. No, God's kingdom is for the broken. In God's kingdom, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame are gladly welcome. For God's kingdom is for the humble. And so having just 
emphasize the presence of the kingdom and the need to respond in faith, Jesus now begins to describe what membership in the kingdom actually looks like and what it will cost. Verse 25 begins by mentioning that there are large crowds gathering and traveling with Jesus at this point. These are his potential disciples who have recognized something unique and unusual about Jesus. Perhaps their curiosity has kept them riveted to Christ's every move. Perhaps it's the likelihood of some miracle or something spectacular that would take place. And these crowds just continue to grow and grow as Jesus' miracles increase. But what we find here in this passage is that there is a huge difference between just accompanying Jesus and truly following him as his disciple. You see, you can be around Jesus. You can be around the things of Jesus, like the church. You can read the word and not truly follow Jesus. If you look down at verses 28 through 32, you notice that Jesus gives two short parables, or you could say illustrations, in the middle of his teaching. And he uses these parables to urge the crowd accompanying him that day to thoroughly count the cost for following him. The first parable is that of a, a builder who sets out to build a tower. And Jesus sets the crowd in the midst of this parable and rhetorically asks which of them would just set out to build a tower without making sure that they had enough resources to complete it. The answer is obvious. No one would do that. To not count the cost would be foolish. To just go out and start building and not have the resources so that you wouldn't be able to complete the job would be careless. And so he says that everyone around, when they see the builder that does that, would mock the builder. The second parable is that of a king setting out to encounter another king in war. Again, Jesus asks a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. What king would not sit down first and deliberate whether his army is able to defeat the other king's army. No wise king would do such a thing. Only a fool would go into war so unprepared. Only a weak king would request a peace treaty in the midst of a war that he actually initiated. Both parables here are given to emphasize a need for serious and careful calculation. See, Jesus is not just soliciting a hasty and emotional decision from those he's teaching that day. Instead, he urges those who would follow him to think deliberately. That they would count the cost. So always one to tell it like it is, Jesus, here at the beginning, starts to weed out the crowd that is accompanying him. And he does so because he's not at all content to just have those that are there for the show. No, He wants commitment. He wants true disciples, true followers. The reformer Hans Denk said, No man can know Christ unless he follows after him in life. You see, Jesus has no desire to hide hide from those who follow him what it will require of them. And so he makes it clear to everyone just how much it's going to cost. Accompanying Jesus is not enough. It's never been enough to just spend time hearing his word, even spending time with him. Jesus isn't calling people to tag along for the show. He calls us 
to follow him and give our all. And so in verse 26, we find the first cost of actually, truly following Jesus. The cost of love. His first statement to the crowd is shocking. You can almost imagine the gasp and the hanging jaws at these provocative words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate? That sounds like a strong word, doesn't it? Does Jesus actually say I should hate my family? In one breath, he tells me to love my enemies, and now he seems to be telling me to hate my parents. I mean, what's what's going on here? What is Jesus calling us to? Over the centuries, this verse has caused a great amount of despair and confusion. For clearly, Jesus would not actually call us to hate our family. When he has summarized all of God's commandments as loving God and one's neighbor, right? So what does this mean? Well, Jesus is actually using a Semitic expression here from the Old Testament that conveys indifference to one and preference to another. It's an expression that we see in Genesis 29 when explaining how Leah was hated by Jacob who loved Rachel more. It's also used in Malachi 1 where the Lord explains his love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. In each of these instances, there's not a certain hostility towards the other, but there's rather a preferential love given to one over the other. I mean, we use this kind of expression a lot, especially our children. So we might say, I love the Packers and I hate the Cowboys. Oh, wait, that that one's actually true. Uh, There is hostility in that statement. We said, I love pizza and I hate broccoli. Now, we don't really have a deep-seated hatred and animosity towards broccoli, do we? Okay, some of you do. Not, not all of us do. But we love pizza more than we love broccoli. We love one thing over the other. And so Jesus' use of this expression captures the seriousness of his demand. He's explaining to us that the amount of love we have for him, should look like hatred for one's family in comparison. And so while the term hate seems like an exaggeration, the force behind this statement is strong. Our love for Jesus is to be second to none. Family must not take Christ's place in our hearts. Our love for him is to take precedence over all other loves. But that's not easy, is it? That's not easy for us to live. If we're honest with ourselves, especially in our American culture, within the church where family is cherished and at the center of our Christian ethic, which is proper and good, a correct view of family, we can still allow our affections, though, for our family to undermine our faithfulness to God. Many of us are prone to a certain type of family idolatry. We feel safe in our homes with our nice little families, and we we feel a sense of security in our relationships. But too often we allow that security to take precedence over following Christ, don't we? Following Christ certainly holds no promise of safety and a secure life. 
You see, what Jesus is doing here is revealing that those who truly follow him are those who die to security found in earthly relationships. Essentially, that's what being a disciple is. It's a course of perpetual dying. And so the rubber meets the road here in this statement. We're, we're to be asking ourselves, do I love my wife? Do you love your wife or husband more than God? Do you love your children more than God? Oh, all of you are probably saying right now, of course not. Jesus is my supreme love. But don't our actions often prove otherwise? One pastor writes, We miss the mark when we choose to put our children's development athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, socially, before their spiritual well-being. We fall short when we spend more time in the car in one day shuttling them to games and lessons than we do in a month in prayer for their souls. And so by comparison, our lives reveal that we hate God and love our children disproportionately. And that we are not, then, really Jesus' disciples. I read that this week and said, ouch. The truth hurts, doesn't it? But wait a second, Dan, you might be thinking. Are you saying I should actually sacrifice my child's comfort and pleasure even their, their well-being, are you actually saying that? Yes. If that means sacrificing your child's comfort for the sake of Christ, yes, I, I mean, actually Jesus is saying that. You see, friends, if you and I are unwilling to sacrifice the security and comfort of our families to follow Christ, Christ tells us we cannot be his disciples. Or it could be that God is leading us out of the comfort of the U.S. to serve on a mission field. Or maybe it's just simply going across the street to share Jesus with our neighbors who make us uncomfortable. Possibly even making our children uncomfortable. Letting them interact with not yet believers. If we're unwilling to do that, Christ says we cannot be his disciples. The force of his statement escalates at the end with this phrase, cannot be my disciple. And we see it three times throughout this passage, so it can't be ignored. This phrase makes each of the costs of discipleship mandatory. They're not optional suggestions to be better disciples. This is what a disciple does. This is the fruit of following Christ with everything. So Jesus calls us to die to the security and comfort of human relationships in order to show that our love for him is far greater than any other love we may have. Oh yes, we are to love our children, care for their well-being, but not sacrifice our relationship with God and following Him because of just the well-being of our children. Truly, the well-being of our children would be if we follow Christ wholeheartedly. Disciples are ready to be labeled haters by their families for the sake of Christ. True disciples give second place to everything and everyone else for the sake of Jesus Christ. Do you? Do you give second place to everything and everyone else? In verse 27, Jesus continues with the second cost of following 
Jesus. Not only love, but sacrifice. As if the relational cost of being a disciple was not enough to clear out the crowd that day, Jesus' next statement surely will. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In case the crowd missed the phrase, even his own life, in his previous statement, Jesus reiterates and expands it here to this tune of cross-bearing. Now the weight of this word often bypasses us in our culture today. For we're far removed from the days of public execution by the cross. But for those in the crowd that day, they knew the horror and the humiliation of the cross. The cross was that instrument of execution reserved for the most despised people, such as the slaves, the poor, those guilty of the worst high treason. So bearing a cross could only mean one thing, impending death. You see, carrying the cross to the place of crucifixion was not a simple task. The torture and humiliation would have already begun by this point. The beating that would have taken place prior to bearing the cross was such a painful event that many people, it's recorded, died from it without making it to the cross. But for those who did make it through the torture, they would then be forced to carry this large, roughly hewn wooden cross to the place of their crucifixion. If required to to carry the entire cross, it would have weighed a few hundred pounds. If required to carry only the crossbar, it still would have weighed a hundred pounds at the least. So bearing a cross was not a simple task. It was costly. Doctors have even said that the trauma from just the heavy crossbar crushing one's chest into the ground would have caused a bruised heart similar to the chest trauma caused by a car accident without a seatbelt, where the driver is violently thrown against the steering wheel. So moving forward and staying upward was agonizing, to say the least. But that was all part of the humiliation. There was no dignity, no privacy retained in bearing the cross, nor the crucifixion that would follow. It was open and public for all to see. Crowds would line the streets to mock those bearing the cross. They struggled to carry the 100-pound wooden beam to the place of their death, and they would be spit upon and mocked. And then, after finally making their way to the crucifixion site, the victim would be affixed to the cross by either ropes or nails and then just left to die. Some would hang there for three or four hours, Others, as long as nine days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggle to breathe until ultimately they would die from asphyxiation. The pain of all of this was so horrendous that a word was even invented to explain it. Excruciating, which literally means from the cross. You see, all of that would have flooded the minds of those in the crowd accompanying Jesus that day. They probably were ones that would have stood by the side and watched the cross-bearers to the execution. And so when Christ says, bear the cross, there's the horror and the humiliation the agony and even the death that follows that floods their minds. Bearing the cross meant humiliation, pain, sacrifice, and death. How could he be calling us to that? 
Well, Jesus knew that this would flood their minds. He knew it well, for Luke already told us back in chapter 9 and verse 51 that Jesus' eyes were fixed on the cross that he was to bear. So he knew that when he called his disciples to bear the cross, he was calling them to sacrifice their lives for the sake of his glory. He knew this because he was on the same journey. As Paul would later record, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, a disciple bearing the cross imitates the humility and obedience of Christ. As disciples, we follow Christ on his path of self-denial, a path that is clearly not easy. So in a day when self-sufficiency is celebrated by believers and unbelievers alike, this call to die to self is extremely unpopular, isn't it? This, this call to bear the cross is unpopular. Oh, we'll wear it around our necks, but don't call us to sacrifice our lives. If you just go to the Barnes & Noble at Easttown, notice what's the largest section of books there. Self-help, not self-denial. In our culture, to be dependent on someone in any way is to show one's weakness. In order to follow Jesus, however, we cannot be independent. We cannot find sufficiency on our own. We must find it only in Christ. And so C.S. Lewis had it right when he wrote, The Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. No, I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. See, being a disciple requires you to sacrifice your life. No exceptions. So, are you willing to let go of your self-sufficiency? Are you willing to bear your own cross and follow after Jesus? Are you willing to sacrifice your life and your reputation for Christ? Jesus calls us to die to the self-sufficiency so that we may pursue him above all things. Jesus must be given our primary allegiance. J.C. Ryle an old, pa old pastor many years ago said, To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is, listen to this, cheap and easy work. To be a nominal Christian and go to church is cheap. It's easy. It's easy to show up here on Sunday mornings. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe Christ, and confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins, our self-righteousness. It will cost us our ease. Disciples 
are followers who bear crosses, who are always ready to give their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. So following Christ means we will give love. It'll cost us love. It'll cost us sacrifice. But lastly this morning, it cost us rejection. Look at verse 33. Jesus is concluding his requirements for discipleship by calling those who may still be left in the crowd that day to surrender all that they have. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So as if our family relationships, our self-importance was not enough, now Christ keeps on these requirements. Everything you have. Jesus, in essence, says to everyone who would be a disciple, as he urges them to count the cost, here's the cost. Every possession you have, everything you are, every corner of your life, reject it all. For my sake alone, reject it all. Your spouse, your children, your job, your house, your beach house, your car, your second car, your money, your retirement fund, your seeking for approval, your quest for worth and success, you name it. He wants it. He wants it all. But why? I mean, why, why would he require so much out of his followers? Why isn't it enough to just come on Sundays? Why does he want everything? Why does he want us to renounce all our possessions, all our positions in life? Isn't it just enough to sing all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give on Sunday morning? Isn't that enough? Jesus answers us with a resounding no. A portion of your life is not enough. Just some of you is insufficient. I want it all. And not just your words. I want everything. For you see, church, where when money or things it can buy make us hesitate about doing what we feel the Lord is calling us to do, we are the disciples of those things rather than Christ. When our family or striving for success at work may hesitate may make us hesitate to obey Christ's call. We're not disciples of Christ, we're disciples of something else. We cannot follow the Lord if he does not have all of our hearts, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does Christ have it? A disciple loves Christ supremely over any other relationship. A disciple willingly sacrifices himself for the sake of Christ, and a disciple rejects all earthly possessions, knowing that the glory of God is far greater, that there's joy in following Jesus. Or let me say it another way. If you do not love him supremely, you cannot be his disciple. If you do not sacrifice completely, you cannot be his disciple. If you do not reject this world fully, you cannot be his disciple. Friend, this morning you might be here for very, the very first time, or maybe you've been here before and you're thinking in your mind, there is no way 
I could ever follow Christ. He is just way too demanding. And you're absolutely right. He is. He is demanding. But let me share with you why he can be so demanding. Because he gave everything you, you have to you. There's nothing in this world that his fingerprints are not all over it. So when you own it, you can demand it all. But you don't own it. He owns it. But also because he gave it all for you. Each one of these actions of a disciple, the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, he already gave for you and for me. He gave love, sacrifice, rejection. He paid it all. Jesus knows what it's like to bear the cross because he did it for you. Friend, Christ gave it all for you. And so turn to him in faith today and, and follow him. Well, the passage concludes here in verses 34 and 35 with a final parable about salt. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. At first, this just seems to be a random thought from our Savior. But Christ never speaks a vain word. And so we have to ask, what's going on with this parable? What's he trying to get across to us? After just calling for our love, sacrifice, and rejection, now he's talking about salt. What's going on? What does Luke want us as readers to learn from this parable from Jesus? We see the truth is, salt can't lose its taste. Even the salt that is thrown out onto the soil or in the manure pile has an effect. Salt that has no saltiness is not salt at all. It's worthless. It's to be thrown away because it has ceased to exist as salt. Likewise, a disciple who does not follow Christ with everything he has is no disciple at all. He is worthless to be cast aside because he has ceased to exist as a disciple. And so Christ concludes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, there's certainly a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. It's not one of effort, however, but one of reorientation of our values toward the greatest worth of being called into God's kingdom and warmly accepted into God's family, all by sheer grace. For Jesus himself bore the greatest cost, the ultimate cost in our place. And you see, it's that truth that motivates a true disciple to follow Jesus at any cost. The cost of love, the cost of sacrifice, the cost of rejection. And to not only repeat, but also live out these words from the lips of Jim Elliot, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim lived that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Are you truly a disciple? Are you a follower? It costs a lot, but it's worth the cost for the glory and joy of our Savior. Father, this morning, I believe you have confronted us in your word. You're confronting those of us who are so quickly prone to wander, find ourselves following after something else, following success at work, following comfort for family, following the winds and waves of the culture. You're confronting us with your word that if we follow something else, we cannot be your disciple. And Lord, I pray that those words, at least those words, would ring in our ears this week. We cannot be your disciple. We do not bear our cross. We do not love you supremely. We don't renounce and reject all that we have for joy and satisfaction in you. So God, do your work. Go to work on our hearts now. Continue to do that. Continue to reveal where we have been sidetracked. And God, help us to reorient our lives and our values around your kingdom values, around your word.